welcome to our podcast, Designer Jeans. We're your hosts, Sanjay. I'm Hope. I'm Maria. And I'm Ephraim. In this podcast, we discuss the history, workings, and significance of the CRISPR-Cas9 system. In this episode, we're going to talk about the treatment of genetic diseases and the background of genetic engineering. We hope you enjoy the episode. So I want to talk to you guys about something, and that something happens to be genetic editing. And I know that like when people say stuff like gene editing, you think of like a future society where like people are shooting at each other with lasers and living in like floating houses and driving flying cars. But gene editing is actually something that we've been doing for thousands of years through something called selective breeding. And, you know, that's how we got our friendly dog pets from wolves. That's how we got like actual full corns on the cob instead of just sour little seedlets with like a few corn pieces. A lot of our food and a lot of the animals that we see in our day-to-day life are a product of gene editing, but we've just been doing it for thousands of years without even knowing. And only recently, and by recently, I mean like in the 1800s, did we realize why this was happening, why you could take two parents that have certain traits. And if you have, if you look at their kid, it might have some combination of those traits. And that all started with a guy named Gregor Mendel. Wasn't he the guy who worked with the peas? Yeah, I call him, uh, I, call, I call him Big P. It's uh, my affectionate <laughs> nickname. So Gregor Mendel, what did he do? Gregor Mendel was a, a monk, but he was also an academic and he wanted to know why this uh, this practice of gene editing worked the way that it did. So he took these peas and they had all sorts of different traits. Maybe they were maybe some were green, maybe some were yellow, maybe some were smooth, maybe some were wrinkly. And he crossed them together and he came up with this entire system that is basically the foundation of modern genetics called Mendelian genetics. I'll give you three guesses as to why it's called that. Because his yeah. name is right. Honestly, you, know? you don't even need this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, but like, why did he choose the peas though? Why not something else? With genetics, you really often want um, something that you can get a lot of generations from and a lot of kids from really quickly. And something like peas were really controllable because they're plants, you know, they're not going to be finicky and they produce a lot of kids really quickly so that he could really see the effects in like a really exaggerated manner of his experiments. But it was it was more ethical than like using kids, right? No, of course. We would never use kids in genetic experiments. But yeah, very early after the discovery of these Mendelian genetic rules, scientists began to understand the actual potential in terms of medicine. A hundred years after Mendel's work, uh, two very smart scientists called Watson and Crick in 1953 realized that not only was DNA the material that 
life uses to transfer its genetic information, but they discovered the shape of it in that twisted ladder double helix that is extremely famous and iconic today. Now, just realizing the shape of DNA might not seem like a very big deal, but very early after this discovery, scientists really began to understand the potential in terms of medicine. Because in 1972, only around 20 years after Watson and Crick's publication, there was a Dr. Theodore Friedman and a Dr. Richard Roblin who published Gene Therapy for Human Genetic Disease in Science Magazine. And Friedman even said that perhaps exogenous good DNA, exogenous meaning DNA that isn't naturally produced by a body but comes from an outside source. So outside good DNA could be used to replace the faulty DNA of those that suffered from genetic defect. How did and they know what was good DNA and what was bad DNA? A lot of very smart people working together in tandem to do something called genomic sequencing. This is probably one of the like most extensive, largest, biggest collaborations in the world of science, which was the Human Genome Project. The Human Genome Project. The Human Genome Project. The Human Genome Project, where a bunch of scientists from all over the world over several years worked together to sequence the DNA of humans. And what that means is, I'm sure you know that DNA is made out of four base pairs. Adenine, which is represented by an A, thymine, which is represented by a T, guanine, which is represented by a G, and cytosine, which is represented by a C. So these four letters, in whatever combination that they are, are the things that give life instructions on how to build itself, how to make proteins, how to construct its body. And this is different for not only each species, but each individual. And many, many scientists work together to sequence the human genome. And we realize that certain phenotypes, basically certain physical traits, are related to certain parts of the human DNA. And if you have a weirder than average sequence in a specific part of your DNA, then you're going to have a weirder than average phenotype or physical trait that's associated with that weirder than average DNA. So Dr. Friedman realized that, hey, if these people have weird DNA in these spots that's causing them to have weird, often undesirable physical traits, why don't we just take out that weird DNA and replace it with quote unquote good, more average DNA that would give them a healthier, more desirable physical trait? And this was way back in 1972. This is not like the future or anything. And I just think that that's crazy. It does seem fairly modern, though. Like the fact that it only happened, what, 50 years ago? It is 50 years ago, but you have to contextualize that with only a little bit more than 100 years ago or 200 years ago have we realized why traits even exist in humans in the first place. So in the late 1880s, we're going from, oh, we have traits to, oh, let's modify our DNA. And I think that that's some really, really quick, incredible progress that we've made. And if you want to talk about Speedy, just two years after Dr. Friedman published that paper in 1970, 
1974, humans created the first genetically modified animal with mice that were injected with virus DNA while they were still blastocysts, basically like just a few stages removed from an embryo. They were injected with this viral DNA and then they were carried to term. And then when they were adults, the, those same scientists tested the adult DNA of those mice and realized that, yep, the viruses that we injected into their blastocysts, their DNA is still present in the adult DNA of these mice. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, the technology uh, to not only be able to think of an experiment like that, but to actually be able to perform it and accurately test it is just really mind-blowing stuff. And, you know, us humans, when we figure something out, the very next thing we figure out is how to make money off of it. And just a decade later in the 1980s, we had actually created genetically engineered organisms for commercial use. A bunch of scientists had created some bacteria that could eat, digest, and basically cleanly remove oil from, from the environment. And from there, the floodgates were basically open. The explosion of genetic modification that came out of the 70s and the 80s basically laid the groundwork for a variety of tools that we use in our everyday lives, like food and medicine. If any of our listeners are diabetic, you can thank genetic editing for a vast majority of the insulin that we use to treat diabetes today. So this was a big deal, guys. That sounds incredible. And and all this, this idea of genetic modification, it's easier in theory than in practice, right, Sanjay? Like it takes a while to do all these experiments. For sure. And that's really like a testament to like how focused and how motivated and how excited these scientists were by these discoveries that they were able to take these theories that for me at least would take years of research and testing to like actually produce like tangible results. And, you know, from 1974, we had the first uh, genetically modified organism and in the 1980s, we were already using it in business. And I think that's just incredible. That is pretty impressive if you think also how like early on, how long it took them to just like uh, selectively breed um, a species, whether like plant or animal, just to get what they wanted, right? And that would take generations and generations and generations. And we did this in a little over a decade. Exactly. but. Another trait of humans is that we're never satisfied with where we are. We're always looking forward. And scientists began to realize that due to a variety of factors, we couldn't really translate the success that we were having in genetically modifying embryos or single-celled organisms into actual living adult animals. Namely that, you know, in a blastocyte or an embryo or a single-celled organism, at most you have to worry about like one cell or a few, few dozen cells that you have to change the DNA of. But in an adult human, you have anywhere from 13 to 15 trillion cells. And you can't just go around injecting a microneedle full of you know, DNA editing proteins into all 15 trillion of, of those cells. I mean, you could, but it would, I think it would take you a while. Person um, might be dead before you finish. Yeah, yeah. But hey, if they're dead, they're not suffering from that disease anymore. So true, true. Um, but yeah, for a variety of factors, that was the big one. You can't really, you couldn't really transfer our 
previous technology when it came to gene editing to actually curing genetic diseases in humans because until very recently gene editing has either been too broad or too narrow like for example in the 1960s during like the height of the cold war we had just invented nuclear weapons and we're messing around with Adams, scientists realized that radiation has a really weird effect on DNA, namely that it can really mutate it. So in the 1960s, scientists used radiation to try and stimulate mutation in plants and just tried to see if they could get a beneficial one by random chance. I think you could see why this probably wouldn't be feasible in a medical setting, kind of just like hitting people with radiation and crossing our fingers and hoping for the best that they get mutated in a way that it fixes their genetic disorder. Isn't that what they used to do with cancer? Where they would yeah. like use radiation to try and, you know, edit the DNA of the cancer cells, but it didn't really work out the right way and it could affect the healthy cells. And it seems like it's so such a big approach to trying to get something so specific. Yeah, and the and the specificity yeah. is the the name of the game. Radiation treatment is sort of like it's like up to chance, really, because you can also affect healthy cells when it comes to treating cancer, which is why I guess it's so effective because you sort of destroy the DNA within the cancer cells, and that's what sort of I guess cures it or makes it go away. Yeah, and it would be really nice if we could kind of just throw DNA or throw radiation at genetic diseases and hope they went away, but we really needed to be more precise. Uh, when it came to that and radiation just wasn't making the cut. And like I said, pre-modern genetic editing has only really been successful in single cell organisms like bacteria or in very few cell organisms like blastocysts as opposed to the trillions of cells that could exist in a mature organism. Really the holy grail of gene therapy would be something that could target specific faulty DNA segments and something that could work in real time throughout an entire organism's body as it existed as an adult. And something like that just seems like so out of reach and so ridiculously difficult to do and might take like years and years and years of research into something like nanotechnology or some crazy sci-fi things like that. But a few scientists said, nah, we're just gonna go back to bacteria and have them solve all of our problems instead. And those recent developments may have provided exactly what we need, exactly that holy grail. And find out next time as we talk about what CRISPR is, how it was discovered, where it currently stands, and where this technology might be headed.